Right, now, those four industrial action, hands up. Attention teachers, we're on strike. We are going to fight to protect the right to strike. If we are united, we are unstoppable. And let's make us an unstoppable force. Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here as ever with my friends Nadia Idle. Hello. And Keir Milburn. Hello. And today we're talking about strikes. That's what strikes are about. So why? Why on earth would we want to... (laughs) We, (laughs) advocates of anti-work... Be talking about strikes today, January 2023. There's nothing more anti-work than striking. It is literally not working when you go on strike. <laughs> Although there are you know, other types of strikes and, and, and it's a little bit more complicated than that. But the obvious reason why we want to talk about strikes is there is a strike wave going on. Quite a big strike wave, actually, at the moment. In fact, today, as we record, there's the first ever strike at an Amazon Fulfillment Centre in the UK. Oh, no, sorry, the first ever official strike at an, uh, a UK Amazon Fulfillment Centre because there were a couple of wildcat strikes last summer. Next week, as we record today, UCU, the University and College Union, is going on strike. In fact, there's going to be a big day of action on the 1st of February, which is when that strike begins there's been big rail strikes, big post office worker strikes by the CWU, big nurses strikes. The, the Royal College of Nurses had a two-day strike a couple of weeks ago. Ambulance workers have been on strike. The civil service workers have been on strike. Teachers uh, in the NEU, National Education Union, have voted to go on strike. It's really quite a big strike wave, this, uh, compared to other other ones so it's interesting to think about, well, this is big and, 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 and unusual. So it's interesting to think about what's going on, how can we position it within the history of strikes and what the prospects might be. Yeah, totally. I think, I think, I think that's right, Kia. So I'm also interested in what happens to collectivity and what happens to the experience of the everyday when we have these big strike waves, when you effectively have a very large group of people around the UK like do, going about their day in a different way and the way they associate with different people is going to be different and the way that like what they do in their day and yeah how they relate to other people and and what happens on a picket line and you know what happens standing on the street rather than being in an office or being in a in an ambulance or whatever um will have an effect on people and not just on an individual level but i guess on a on a collective level and there's so many people involved in various different strikes in this strike wave um, that I wonder whether this has an effect on changing community effectively, especially after the pandemic. So that's something I'm also specifically interested in. What about you, Jeremy? Uh, Yeah, all of the above. I'm interested in all of that. Uh, Striking is a really important form of collective action. In some ways, it's the most basic and definitive form of collective action that can be taken in a capitalist economy in the classic Marxist argument is that workers' primary source of power is their labour and their their capacity to withdraw it, um, to withdraw cooperation 
with their employers. So it's really important. It's a really crucial practice. It's a really crucial idea. And to some extent, contemporary, not just contemporary, modern, going back hundreds of years, ideas about things like solidarity and and democracy as something that can be extended to include the working class are indissociable from the history of organised labour and collective bargaining and strikes. I mean, the other thing we should probably mention, actually, is on the other side of this is that um, there is anti-strike legislation going through Parliament at the moment, quite like historically unprecedented anti-strike legislation, quite unusual, in which in six essential services... Not sure which minister it would be actually, but a government minister can de- can determine what the minimum level of service that needs to be provided, so they can mandate workers not to go on strike and to ha- to have to go into work uh, during strike days. So workers who have been, who've who've voted to go on strike, who want to go on strike, would be legally banned from doing so. This 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 is something which is unusual and you know incredibly draconian, and it fits into a wider really quite authoritarian move on behalf of the Conservative Party in the UK, who've introduced really, really draconian laws around to try to prevent protesting, etc. So it's interesting to think about, well, why why might that be happening? What are they frightened of? Or are they just, you know, trying to uh, rouse their own supporters with a bit of anti-striker rhetoric? Well, an action. Yeah, totally. And I think it's really important to for one of the things for us to discuss is to demystify what a strike is. Obviously, there's so much uh, negative media about it. And I'm happy, Keir, that you mentioned this within the kind of catchment of protest, because, you know, one of the things that we've seen over the last couple of decades is this kind of rhetoric around, you know, a good protest and a bad protest and peaceful protest and non-peaceful protest. And I think that kind of discourse is really damaging. And we've seen the same things with talking about strikes and this idea of minimum service. You know, it's been really important to have these figures who are like Mick Lynch or, or whoever who have come up and, and basically, you know, reiterated this idea that, you know, strikes are about disruption. Like that is the whole point. Once you get dragged into this this discourse around like, oh, no, we want strikes to be nice and fluffy. It's like, well, the whole point is you know, that it should be disruptive because, you know, workers are not being given a fair deal. And I think we'll talk a lot about that later. Perhaps we should go back to absolute square one, though, and explain what a, what a strike is. So a strike is basically a refusal to do something. So normally when we think about it, we're thinking about workplace strikes in which you withdraw your labour, you refuse to go to work in order to achieve uh, one aim or another, basically. And in, in, in that uh, terms, it's, strikes aren't always about disruption, actually, because quite a lot of strikes that we've seen over the last sort of 20 years in which striking has really, really dropped off a cliff, the last 20, 30 years has been sort of symbolic one-day strikes, which, which quite often don't disrupt much at all. And the aim is to sort of raise an issue and to cause perhaps reputational damage rather than economic damage to managers, whoever you're striking against. So that's the classic idea of what, of what a strike is. That's what we've been talking about, a, a strike so far, both symbolic and or disruptive strikes. And so disruptive strikes or workplace strikes are when you withdraw your labour in order to, to cause some sort of economic, perhaps also, perhaps also like psychological disruption to capital or perhaps on managers, depending on how you might look at things. 
that doesn't mean it's an all-out strike. It could be a short period of strike or even, you know, day-long strikes, but aimed at particular periods which are really, really disruptive for the needs of managers or for the needs of capital. Uh, so, you know, with the UCU strikes, one of the proposals being put forward is that the strikes be targeted at marking, so marking boycotts or targeted at recruitment, the key periods for the contemporary university run as a business sort of thing. But, you know, the classic idea of a strike and the, the, the way it was originally perceived was as some sort of thing where, you know, you get all of the workers to go out and to stay out and to go on strike until they win their demands. You know, when it gets like that, you can think of a strike as like a race, basically. Both sides are racing to provoke a crisis for the other side. Say we've got a factory, you know, the employers, they've got to service their debts, etc. They've got to pay the rent on the on the on the factory, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And they can't do that if production is disrupted. And so their income stops coming in. And so in response, they if we walk out, they they um, stop paying us. And so that's an aim that aims to try to provoke a crisis of social reproduction amongst the workers, basically. You know, the strikers have to eat, they have to pay their rent, etc. And it's sort of like a race because whoever lasts longest in that basically wins. Basically, whoever can stave off their crisis the longer wins. And that's a useful way to think about it, I think, because... It, like, it provides a sort of an angle upon which we can think about why strikes were more successful in the past than they have been over the last 30 to 40 years, why the, 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 the shape and sort of structure of strikes has changed so much and why they might be coming back now, basically. Although strikes are also used in other ways, right? So people talk about rent strikes, debt strikes, hunger strikes. Sex um, strikes. Sex strikes, yes. Goodwill strikes are things where you target the needs of managers, not the needs of, of the people using a service. So the classic idea of a, of a goodwill strike is a, a bus strike in which the buses still run, but the workers refuse to collect fares, etc. That's a sort of goodwill strike. And I also think there's something else going on, which is it's a demonstration of collective power. Is It's a reminder to the either the institution or the managers or you know the business owners or the people who are running the thing that are making profit out of the thing that when people get together and take some kind of action it's a way of saying actually we are here and we can demonstrate that power which is something in late capitalism which you do, you don't get to see that power of the collective demonstrated very often especially you know in places like britain and so i think that's why it's kind of it's, it's, it's such an important thing to talk about. You know what? We should pay part of the union by the Straubs. Now I'm a union man Amazed at what I am I say what I think That the company stinks Yes, I'm a union man When we meet in the local hall I'll be voting with them all with a hell of a shout, it's out, brothers, out. And the rise of the factories fall. Oh, you don't get me, I'm part of the union. You don't get me, I'm part of the union. You don't get me, I'm part of the union. Till the day I die. Till the day I die. The Straubs have been going since early 1960s, 64, I think they formed something like that. And they were like a bluegrass band from London, not from uh, Kentucky. The, part of the unit is basically not a bluegrass 
song sort of came out of nowhere, but it became embraced as a sort of a union anthem. If I strike for higher pay, when I show my card to the Scotland Yard, and this is what I say, oh, you don't get me out part of the union, you don't get me out part of the union, you don't get me out part of the union, till the day I die, till the day I die. Well, it's a glam rock stomp. Like of its moment, and it, it's really interesting. Oh, it song. is actually, yeah. <laughs> it's a glam rock stomp, and there is something going on with the, the glam rock stomps of that period, and the way they borrow, they effectively borrow their vocal style from the football terrace chants, in a way that sort of Oi Punk will try, and the Clash even will try to do in a different, a, a couple of years later. And although it is definitely sort of masculinist, that's one of the things for which that style of music would come to be critiqued by radical critics critics later on it is it is a genuine expression of a desire for proletarian solidarity and it absolutely says something that you know this was the historic high point of political radicalism really across the, the capitalist world i think that this song was became a huge hit You think, you think the Prime Minister runs England? What a laugh. What a laugh. Who does run the world, Alan? Trade unions. We should say a bit more like what, about what a union is. Because the, mm. the way a strike comes about, unless it's a completely spontaneous action by a group of workers, a strike comes about because there's a union. Or, well, arguably, a union only really comes about because there's a strike as well. Arguably, that's... Originally, unions are formed as vehicles for striking. You know, people often are sort of confused about what a union is. Uh, and so for the benefit, I mean, I have been asked. I've been asked by a friend who were had been members of the Labour Party for years, but who worked in the private sector and had never been in a union. What is a union? I don't understand what it does. So for the benefit of any listeners in a similar position, what a, un- a trade union is today, like within a very highly delimited legal framework, is a membership organisation which you are allowed to join if you work in a particular sector sector of the workforce. And its job is to collectively negotiate with employers uh, your pay, your terms and conditions, your working hours. And this whole idea of what's called collective bargaining goes back to relatively early stages of the Industrial Revolution, I mean, presumably you can trace back even further. You can find historical antecedents in the apprentices of London, for example, back hundreds of years ago would sometimes sort of casually try to work together to try to negotiate their wages with the guildmasters, but that never really took the form of any very extensive organisation. And in the early 19th century, when industrial workers started to organise themselves to, to try to negotiate with employers. The initial response of employers and of really the employing class was that this should be completely prohibited, that this should just be, this was completely morally illegitimate. And this is still a position taken essentially by strike busting and anti-strike agents and ideologues, especially in the States, I'm sure in lots of other places as well, which is to say that really the worker should be understood as having an individual contract with the employer and for workers to operate together, to operate collectively, to try to improve their terms and conditions, 
is the equivalent of a cartel. It's the equivalent of people engaged in some commercial enterprise banding together to fix prices rather than allowing the market simply to set the price of the product. In this case, the product is labour. You know, even people who we think of now as being fairly radical thinkers, like John Stuart Mill in the early 19th century is saying, yeah, it's it's, it's fine to criminalise trade unionism, basically, because it breaks with a kind of completely individualistic liberal conception of what freedom is and what property rights should be and how they should be exercised. It's not till the 1870s in Britain that it isn't illegal to, to be in a union and that you're not charged with conspiracy if you try to form a union. I mean, it's the result of a various sets of political, social and economic processes. Partly it's the outcome of workers, you know, engaging several generations of workers defying the law and engaging in illegal strike action to the point where it seemed to be to a lot of the employers and their political representatives seemed to be just easier to let them have legal unions and then negotiate with them and try to divide them against each other where possible by um, offering some workers better deals than others. You know, it was also partly the outcome of the class tensions between different sections of the ruling class themselves and the general move towards incorporating the working class into the dem- the liberal democratic polity of the British state rather than simply excluding them from it. Now, I think we should go through the history. I think it'd be really useful to, to sort of reconstruct some of the different ways in which strikes have been seen and used over the, over the years mainly over the like, last couple of hundred years. And the different way unions have been seen. I think you can't separate them, really. Yeah, yeah, that, that, is, that is true to some extent. But I think there's there are other distinctions we could make before we sort of get into that history. And one of them is the, what we've been talking about so far as a strike is sort of something which we might think of as an industrial strike, even if it doesn't take place in industry. It's an industrial strike because it's it's basically about, you know, improving workers' conditions under the current setup. Yes. But like, you know, the the, the early strikes uh, in the sort of capitalist period, they were actually political strikes. You know, the earliest strikes were around, were linked to Chartism, were around trying to get the vote, basically. But the people weren't trying to get the vote because they thought it'd be nice to go and vote every few years. They saw that as the key for an absolutely radical transformation of society. You know, in, the, in later periods in the early 20th century, you know, strikes were seen as the as uh, or you know the the general strike or the mass strike were seen as you know revolutionary actions, ways in which you could fundamentally you know the the actual means in which you would fundamentally change society, in sort of revolutionary way. And obviously, for the for the earlier period, these political strikes there weren't really unions involved. It was around chartism, and so you know, the chartists w- were not formed around industrial unions in in, in that sort of way. I don't think it's strictly accurate to say they were the first strikes were political strikes because they weren't. There had been industrial strikes going back to the late 18th century and then and then there was Chartism, which was a working class movement for suffrage. And then there was a convergence of those things after the kind of political strategy of Chartism, which is essentially a sort of moral plea to the ruling classes and the middle class to acknowledge the political dignity of workers had, had failed. So just think if, in terms of the strict chronology... I don't think it's right to say the first strikes were political strikes. Uh, no, no. Okay, yeah, I'll take that back. But but my point I was making was they're not necessarily linked to like unions. There are political strikes as well. Yeah, yeah, there definitely are. Yeah, and historic. I mean, historically, this is one of the great contentious issues. I mean, because basically, I would say, in a nutshell, 
Of course, the ruling class, the capitalist class, does not want to have to pay people higher wages. It never does. Like I always say to students, you can understand 90% of what happens on planet Earth and has done for the past 300 years with this very simple formula, capital will always use every means at its disposal to lower the price of labour, to lower wages. Uh, there you go. The other 10% is very important. You can understand 90% on that basis. But it's also true that the thing that has really terrified not just actual capitalists, but also the middle classes, like however we define them, like uh, various stages, like the prof- you know often the professional classes, you know fairly large chunks of sort of society and kind of quasi elite society. The thing that has absolutely terrified them, really, again going back to the late eighteenth century. I mean, arguably going back to the seventeenth century, even. The, the kind of first stirrings of the potential for this kind of radicalism in the, during the English Revolution. The thing that terrifies them is indeed the prospect of organised labour being used for polit- towards political ends, towards the end of actually you know, changing the political system, changing the polity, changing the legal frameworks within which property is defined and distributed, and to some extent, the sort of legalisation of unions over the course of the 19th century, the second half of the 19th century, it goes along partly with the political enfranchisement of working men, uh, which happens in several stages between the 1870s and the early 20th century. But it's also, of course, it is a process of, of trying to fend off the threat of a sort of con- complete convergence between political demands and industrial demands which is the form which most people have thought on both the left and the right for hundreds of years uh, uh, some kind of worker socialist revolution would probably take if it was going to take any form at all and i mean right now in britain we are faced with the legal regime which is really introduced by the Thatcher and major government in the 80s and 90s one of its foundational repressive principles is to isolate industrial strikes and say they're the only legitimate form of strike and say that you can't have a political strike so you're not allowed to to go on strike over any issue other than your own personal working conditions so you're not allowed to go on strike in support of other sections of the workforce so you can't do what was happening you know, at times of very heightened militancy in the 70s or was threatened to happen more often than it actually did. You can't have workers in strategic sectors like rail and coal going on strike in support of more vulnerable sections of the workforce like nurses. You're not allowed to have because that, you know, historically that was one of the solutions to the problem. What do you do when you have a workforce which if they go on strike people are really going to suffer? very immediately well one of the answers is will you get one of the other sectors of the workforce which can make life very inconvenient for capitalists but no one's going to die if they go on strike and they go on strike on on their behalf i mean the absolutely cornerstone of the thatcherite uh, so-called reforms of the union laws in the 80s was to remove that make that illegal and of course the blair government did not restore that right legal right and it, that is just relatively unusual in, in an OECD country for workers not to have that right and not to have the right to strike over what are seen as political demands. And of course, historically, this is one of the foundational principles of modern bourgeois capitalist liberalism, the idea that the economy is somehow completely separate from politics, is outside politics, should, politics shouldn't have anything to do with it. And what happens over the course of the 19th century is you go from this really crude form of repressive, brutal repression, which says any form of collective action by workers is not allowed, 
to one which says, okay, it should be allowed, but it must be confined to the economy in some way. It can't really be politicised. And at the, But of course, for most of the 20th century, they can't even really manage that because workers are too strong, they're too powerful, they're too well-organised. I see not for all of at key at, for key periods of the 20th century. But since the 1980s onwards, in Britain at least, we've been in this situation where that liberal desire to completely constrain industrial collective action on the part of workers to industrial struggle has been maintained really rigorously, hasn't it? I think it's a, it's a good point, actually, because it, it, that illustrates the strangeness of the February the 1st day of action in which, you know, lots of unions of different in different sectors have coordinated to go on strike at the same time. Yet, you know, officially, they're all just going on strike purely on their own terms and conditions. The problem with that is, you know, everybody knows that this, you know, the people that they're actually fighting are not necessarily their direct employers. That who the, the people they have to defeat is the government, basically. You know, this is a political strike. This strike wave is a political strike. And, and we know that because, you know, the government has intervened to prevent the settlement of the rail strike. That means the RMT, if they're going to win, they have to defeat the government, basically. The same for the for UCU, of course, perhaps particular uh, vice chancellors of universities might take more or less lenient action, but basically you have to defeat the government. <laughs> and so that is illegal. Can we unpack that a little bit? Maybe explain what defeat the government means in this specific situation. Well, it's the government who, who do, the government really does not want the Rail and Maritime and Transport Union to win its current dispute with employers in the rail sector, even if employers in the rail sector would prefer to settle the dispute on favourable terms. And they don't want that to happen for entirely political reasons, that the RMT is the most left-wing union in the country. It's widely understood to be strategically crucial because transport workers are one of the few sectors of the workforce who do have the capacity relatively easily to cause massive scale national disruption but also not really to threaten anybody's lives so if they win their strike it is widely perceived by the strikers by the union and by the government and by the bosses that this will very likely infuse and encourage like all all these other strike waves that are going on and when the government intervened before christmas like basically to stop that rail deal from happening like like, is that in itself illegal? Like, what's hap- what's happening there? Is that corruption? Is that the government having a phone call with someone? How does that work? I mean, the government really can dictate terms to the rail companies, because even though we have this supposedly privatised rail system, it's completely dependent on massive levels of government subsidy. So government can effectively dictate policy to the, to the rail companies. It really is the worst of all possible worlds. Exactly. And this is why, this is why you know, the ideology completely falls apart in terms of, like, you know, the state interference in, like, uh, in private businesses because it's only private when it suits them. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's, I mean, that's absolutely right. And it's, you know, it's worth observing how kind of cons- the, the ideology of the right, the conservative party sort of ideology, since the acceptance of the legalisation of unions in the 1870s, although, you know, it was a policy of the first Gladstone administration, the first liberal government, you know, Gladstone liberal government, but it was accepted quite quickly by the Conservative Party. That The role of government was to take on this sort of paternalistic position above the fray to kind of allow workers and bosses to negotiate and just sort of leave them to it and maybe intervene if things got really, really bad. 
but at crucial moments historically, of course, they were willing, you know, they were willing to break with this idea, like the, during the Great General Strike in, in twenty six, which we'll, we'll talk about, I'm sure. But one of the key innovations of Thatcherism within that history was to say, well, basically, no, the government should be on the side of capital against workers, basically, when it comes down to it. And they have an ideology to justify this, which says, look, ultimately, you have to defend the competitive profitability of British companies in a, in a, in a global market. And if you don't defend that competitive profitability, then everybody suffers, the whole economy suffers. And so ultimately, it's justified for work for government to intervene on behalf of the public against the interests of particular groups of workers. Of course, it's a wrong argument. I'm not saying it's a right argument, but that is how they conceptualise it. Our sales are the controlling factor in this business. We just can't continue to produce coal and stack it up in order to please all of the people who want to continue to produce coal without a market. Which side are you on? It's a song written by Florence Reese, who is not particularly a singer, although the version is quite nice. What's really notable about it is Florence Reese wrote that song in the immediate aftermath of having a house ransacked by the local sheriff and a load of like hired thugs. Uh, during a big strike in 1931 in Kentucky, known as the Harlan County Strike, which is very famous. It was very, very violent. The, the police took the side of the management, and basically strikes in the U.S. were, were, were violent at that stage, with fighting and shooting on both sides, etc. Anyway, in 1931, the local sheriff and a big bunch of thugs came looking for Florence Reese's husband, Sam Reese, who was a one of the, the, the mine, un, mine union organisers of that strike, you know, he's the leader of the strike. He, he'd he uh, escaped because he knew they were coming and they just smashed up the house. Uh, and in vengeance, Florence picked up a pen and paper and immediately wrote down the words you're about to hear now. You go to Harlan County, there is no neutral there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? They say they have to guard us to educate their child. Their children live in luxury, our children almost wild. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Gentlemen, can you stand it or tell me how you can? Will you be a gun thug or will you be a man? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner. He's now in the air and sun. He'll be with you fellow workers till every battle's won. Which side are you on? Are the strikes justified and should the pay demands be made? I don't think strikes are ever justified. Um, I'm thinking about the whole of London, the whole of South East, the whole of the country tomorrow, people trying to get to work, to do what they want to do, to, you know, to earn money and, and, and pay for their family, and mm. they will be stopped from doing so tomorrow. Perhaps we should sort of emphasise a little bit why the government, or, or just basically the political elite altogether, let's call it the political media elite, is so anti, anti-striking. And I think it's partly to do. It's partly to do with the disruption thing. It's partly to do with the taking aside of capital, etc. It's partly because we're in an inflationary period, and the solution to that is to bring down wages because there's going to be no constraint on profit rates, etc. And you know the way you bring down wages is by restricting 
collective bargaining, basically. But like beyond that, there's a reason why the strike has such a such a big part of the of, of the left's political imaginary, not just historical, but you know, the strikes have got certain elements to them that that that, that really lead it to towards a left-wing politics, I think. And one of them is, of course, what Nadia referred to earlier, which is this provocation of solidarity. But that, I think, you can defer down to that, this pedagogical f- function of strikes, in which, you know, strikes one of those few moments in which the antagonism between the workforce and capital or managers, however that, that divides, that antagonism can become really stark, basically. The structuring antagonism of our society, which is pri- which is basically hidden for most of the time or basically not in full view most of the time. And of course that has this other effect, which is this solidarity effect that Nadia said. No, I just think there's there's it's it's even more rudimentary than that. It's about people being able to view themselves within a collectivity and what that mm. does to society. I think even that's the step before solidarity. It's it's the ability of people to say, if I have a problem, yeah. I will see who else has that same problem and yeah, together exactly. We can we can beat someone else who has more power, and I think that is it. That is the threat. Like that is, and and that's something that a lot of people, regardless of their politics, a lot of progressive young people have never experienced at work. They've never experienced, and now they might be invited to experience that through this strike wave. And I, that idea that people can get together in the workplace. And take action. It's not just sitting alone in yourself with this kind of self-responsibilization kind of, you know, dogma weighing you down. And, you know, the effect that it has on the individual mental health to be involved in a collectivity. I mean, I've been in I've I've been, you know, in a situation where I was bullied at work and by being in a union and you know having a shop steward and being able to talk to other people about it is completely life-changing. And and that I think is also it's not it's not just about capital in a crude sense it's about what that does to society. Oh yeah, that that that's more or less what I was going to say. I mean, the strikes are these moments of solidarity, which which historically have just had this had this huge effect on the way people see the world and how they see themselves. These moments where people's values are what they what they they perceive as their values change really quite fundamentally. You know what I mean? And what they believe is possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think that's absolutely tied into it. And it's also this this moment where previous divisions seem to, to to evaporate. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we always talk about that moment in the film Pride, where lesbian lesbian and gay support the minors, and that you know that idea that um, you know what what we're seeing is like hard divides suddenly evaporate under this new division of society between you know wage workers and capital. We all know we can't talk about Pride without setting us all off we're going to start crying if we <laughs> cry too much i mean the, yeah. yeah i think we're all very affected by the solidarity that's displayed in that in that film and and that to us you know it's such an emotional thing because that is that is the kind of the vision of how we want to see action materialize in society and that's currently been repressed through this kind of individual kind of dogma if you've supported lgsm then thank you Because what you've given us is more than money, it's friendship. When you're in a battle against an enemy so much bigger, so much stronger than you, but to find out you had a friend you never knew existed, well, that's the best feeling in the world. So thank you. 
You know, you were just mentioning about young people not 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 knowing what unions are or never experiencing strikes and so forth. There's, I, I found, read this article recently, or a couple of articles in which, like, so this is an American study which showed that Gen Z uh, um, was the most pro-union and pro-strike cohort of all of the generations, basically, and they were more pro-union than the Boomers and gen x were when they were their age i have re- i have re- i have read that yeah i think yeah, that's slightly yeah. different to what i was saying because they have let they, they, you know they feel like they're never going to own a house like they're always going to be in precarious work so the, so ideologically they have less to lose so in fact i read that piece and i think that made most more most set like i th- think that, that makes sense however i don't think that's the same as having experienced that practically that kind of collectivity practically because there's less opportunity to do that and i think is the interesting experiment in the uk at the moment is whether that's going to have an effect on that generation in a kind of more more practical sense whereas ideologically i think they're there i agree you know i see i see what you're saying yeah the other the other thing that was interesting in that study though was that their their attitudes pro-union and pro-strike attitudes amongst like that the younger cohort was pretty much the same amongst uh, graduate labor and non-graduate labor, which is one of the big divides people put forward, uh, you know, divides in the working class that people put forward, which I found really, really interesting, actually. And then there's that's in the UK, the US, and in the UK, it's a pretty similar picture, actually, with Gen Z and millennials being more pro-union and pro-strike than, uh, than older cohorts. Well, this is good. This is 21st century analysis. You know, we need to move <laughs> out of the 20th century analysis. You know, we're going to give yeah. a bit of history. But yeah, there's good. we should be looking at, you know, the different trends. I mean, it's, it's of, in a way, it's sort of, you can see how their in, people's interests have been shaped. But like, in, I think for most people in the UK, that would be counterintuitive to the, how they, they, they think it would go. Although probably they'd just come and say, yeah, well, that's because the boomers live through the 70s where the unions are out of control, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And what 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 does that mean? Even unpacking that is interesting. Like the unions are out of control. Like what, what are we talking about there? Is it, is it about specific action? Is it just a display of, you know, working class people saying we've had enough? Like, what is that thing? Nadia, you were talking about the idea of a mass sex strike. Yeah, Lysistrata. So what, 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 I mean, I don't actually know that much about Lysistrata, except that we rehashed it by using it as a way to demonstrate against the Iraq war. It's a comedy, it's a, it's a Greek comedy that imagines like a sex strike, doesn't it, taking place? Yeah. Yeah, 400 BC or something like that. And the idea is that I think for the, for the, the women, way of stopping the men from going off to war is saying, right, we're on a massive sex strike, which I think is a really interesting idea. Isn't this a Chris Knight um, theory, this? Well, the Chris Knight theory was that somehow Western civilization began with a, with, a strex, with a sex strike. I mean, not Western, like civilization as such begins with women going in a patriarchal society, organizing themselves to go, organizing a sex strike in order to assert some sort of collective autonomy against their patriarchal oppressors and that one can find all kinds of traces of evidence of this in very ancient myths and folklore uh, so it's this kind of paleoanthropological theory about the origins of civilization it's, yeah it's completely untestable and unprovable and it's fine as, as, as there are a lot there as those theories go i'm very pro that theory 
Does that theory mean that uh, the whole of civilization has been like an incel tantrum <laughs> in response to that section? Because that fucking makes sense, actually. Yeah, thank I you. I think I can it sign does. up to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that theory. But it's interesting because it, speaking about, you know, like the 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 definitions of strike, as you were talking about before, like that's not an economic strike, but it's an interesting one. We get the phrase strike from a political protest in 1768 in in London, in the the docks of London, where sailors struck the sails of their ships. So basically they took down, I think it was the the top sail or whatever. Anyway, they they took down the sails so that ships couldn't move in solidarity to to a demonstration that was going on in the city at the time. And so that's the word strike. They struck your sails, et cetera. You know, we should, we should think back to that period where sailors on sailing ships, they're the tech workers of their time because the sailing ships are like the, the highest form of high-tech machine. They've got great power because that's the core mechanism through which international trade, or in fact, you know, non-international trade takes place. And, you know, conditions on ships were incredibly harsh. It was, you know, particularly on, on military ships and military naval ships that, you know, they were real, real dictatorships with really horrendous punishments, etc. Basically, the sailors and ports have traditionally been sort of militant, basically, and had their, you know, there, there was an international culture of sailors where crews would be from all different countries, etc. They speak a sort of strange sort of melange language as a sort of the, the general language of the sea. They looked completely different from landlubbers, etc. And so, yeah, you could you could sort of see why the, the, the act of striking emerges out of that sort of quite militant multinational culture, basically. And of course, you know, the, the idea that docks are always left-wing places or militant places, you know, is held through to today in reference to Liverpool, et cetera, and these sorts of things. Yeah, that's definitely true. Really? Always left-wing? I guess I'm thinking thinking about the level of, like, prostitution and exploitation of women. So that bit was, you know, pretty, still pretty misogynistic. I mean, the docks have always were always pivotal as long as the shipping she was central to the trade economy, like in different countries and around the world. And the docks don't become properly organised till the 1890s, at least in the UK, and it's a big deal. But before that... After the examples like the sailors in the 1760s, as the industrial economy develops, there are sporadic but increasingly frequent examples, usually localised to particular plants or factories or towns or regions of people trying to organise workers uh, in order to improve their wages and conditions, which are, of course, absolutely hellishly horrendous at this time. And then... As we were saying earlier, by the 1830s, you've got the emergence, the 1820s, 1830s, the Chartist movement is often talked about by historians as being the first sort of national working class movement as such. And it is basically a pacifistic movement trying to demand suffrage, equal voting rights for men, irrespective of class. And... The suffrage movement famously suffers a kind of historic blow in 1832 when the Great Reform Act is passed, which does reform uh, Parliament, basically with the objective of enfranchising the emerging bourgeois class, the middle class, the the commercial classes, whereas up to that point, really, I mean, a, a lot of parliamentary seats had effectively just been in the gift of local aristocratic families. 
But it doesn't extend the franchise, as has been hoped, at all to workers. And it's seen as a classic, classic move to incorporate the emerging urban bourgeoisie and provincial bourgeoisie into the hegemonic block of the industrial capitalist society, which is emerging in Britain, uh, and ex- while ex- driving a wedge between them and actual workers. Because uh, up to that point, they've been sort of, up, in some cases, they'd been united in their demands for political reform. And that's the point at which Bembo's Grand National Holiday gets published. Do you want to talk about that, Keir? As far as I know, that's the first sort of proposition of it. basically a general strike as a mechanism through which to introduce revolutionary change. Basically, yeah. So, like the Chartists are split between the sort of like moral force persuasion wing, a physical force wing, which I'm not quite sure when that is. When is the Newport Rising? I should look yeah, these no, things up. Well, my chronology of Chartism is always really bad, actually. Yeah, so- because yeah. like it's stopped. Because I, I, you know, like lots of people, I read that Thompson's the making of the English working class, but that basically stops with the emergence of Chartism. It's about the prehistory of Chartism, and then I've never really sat down and studied the history of Chartism <laughs> yeah. properly. It's thirty nine. It's later. It's all, several years after the. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically, yeah. the passing of the Great Reform Act is this pivotal moment, you know, because it is seen as that it's just not getting anywhere, being nice, being peaceful. Yeah, but like Ben Bow's thing is written in 1832, and so it's a proposition for basically a a revolutionary strike in which, but he would call it a grand national holiday and then it'd be a a sort of general strike among the working classes. And like his proposition is that then, you know, local committees would take up keeping the peace and then there'd be like delegates going from from different areas to a national government who would just basically form the new government basically sort of like a a sort of a peaceful general strike as a a, a form of revolution so if we think about like the 1839 is the Newport uprising in which which is like an armed uprising where people come down from the tops of the valleys and they they you know march and take over Newport they thought there'd be other risings elsewhere except if that fails and then in 1842, the Chartists adopt Benbow's Grand National Holiday as a strategy. And that's where the sort of 1842 strike and plug riots came out. And so they were called the plug riots because groups of workers would gather in front of mills or get into mills and they'd call the people out on strike by pulling the plugs out of the boilers that would keep the machinery going in, in, in a mill or a factory. Not far from me in Holbeck, I can just about see it out the window, Holbeck in Leeds, uh, there's a big sort of riot, lots of plugs were pulled out of mills, etc. And the crowd only dispersed because the army brought in some cannon and they threatened to fire the cannon um, and bombard the workers' houses in Holbeck, basically. And then they, they saw the crowd dispersed. So you can see that the Grand National Holiday wasn't quite as peaceful as Benbow had, uh, had suggested it might be. But that's the sort of idea of like, you know, this is not a strike in which you're trying to improve your terms and conditions. This is a strike where you're trying to fundamentally change society, either by getting suffrage or by by forming an alternative government to the government that reigned at the time. Sure. And and in some senses, the sort of genesis of socialism and communism in the latter latter decades, latter half really of the 19th century comes out of this idea that this sort of generalised strike might involve occupying and taking over the factories and the towns. And that would be, that essentially would be the means of transition to socialism. And to some extent, Marx derives most of his presumptions about what the future of capitalist and post-capitalist society is going to look like from the assumption that sooner or later that's what's going to happen. 
Uh, people are going to be wondering why we haven't mentioned the Tolpuddle Martyrs. Tolpuddle Martyrs, a group of workers who are sentenced to exile in Australia in the early 1830s for having had the temerity to try to form a local union and demand better paying conditions from their workers. And, and it was. We should say this was a thing. Sorry to interrupt that, like, you know, there were kids who had stolen bread who were sent off to Australia. Like this was a thing that was that was happening at the time. Yeah, it was a thing. Yeah, to be tran- to be transported to the colonies, to be sent to live in Australia, was a punishment for various kinds of sort of working class crime, and including this one. I mean, they're remembered because it was seen as a kind of national outrage. It was seen as an incredibly harsh sentence, and eventually the sentences were over the repeals they were brought home after a few years and in some ways that's sort of the beginning of the process which leads by the 1870s to unions being decriminalized of course the other part of that process is the emergence of craft unions of the representing what people like marx would call the aristocracy of labor the kind of elite highly skilled sections of the working class and the perception by you know, the ruling class and government that if you decriminalised trade unions and you said to the workers, especially in that aristocracy of labour, right, you guys can have unions and you can have the vote. And what we're going to do is we're going to say, if you're an affluent enough worker, you get the same political rights as a member of the bourgeoisie or the aristocracy and you can have your unions, then in return for that, what we want from you is basically a suppression of any form of revolutionary militancy from within your own ranks or within the ranks of the lower orders of the working class. And that is the moment of the birth, really, of sort of working class conservatism, which has often taken the form of just actively voting for the Conservative Party, but has also can also be identified with the tradition of the right wing of the Labour Party from the late 19th, from the early 20th century onwards. And it's really from that point on, I think, to some extent, that the whole question of well, what is a union, what exactly is it for, starts to become much more contentious. Because by the late 19th century, you have people looking back to ideas like the Great National Holiday, but developing very highly thought through political theories about how that kind of policies could be developed. So you have one of the key strands, I mean, Within the broad international workers' movement, or the, or the revolutionary international workers' movement, in the latter decades of the 19th century, really through to the 30s, uh, you know, our, one of the biggest components of it is the anarchist movement, especially in southern Europe and, and parts of the states, etc., et especially if you include organisations like the Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world and the states. And within anarchism, probably the most historically significant strand is syndicalism, you know, some, what's sometimes called anarcho-syndicalism, sometimes just syndicalism. And that is the idea that actually the, the workers' organisations, the unions, are the natural vehicles, they're the embryonic forms of the, of the new society and the new system of political organisation. So they imagine a, a revolution taking place through all of these workers becoming organised through their industrial unions, taking over the means of production, taking over the cities and towns, and forming a new kind of government on that basis. And they're even imagining a future society in which that's how society will be organised. That's how decisions will be taken. It will be, the way decisions will be taken democratically is not is perhaps in some extreme examples less through political units organized on the basis of locality like your town council or whatever but on the basis of industrial sectors 
And you know, you can look to some historic examples like like Yugoslavia, which ended up drawing on on some elements of that in the way they organised themselves during their socialist period. And on the other hand, on the, uh, you know, on the other side of the coin from revolutionary syndicalism, which is the idea that ultimately industrial struggle should be revolutionary struggle and there's no real difference and you probably shouldn't even bother with formal politics and elections and stuff. You should just organise the workers in your sector to make them as militant as possible with the ultimate aspiration of taking over that economic sector using your revolutionary union as the basis and as the embryonic form of the future institutions of self-government on the other side of the coin from that is the idea that unions indeed have no other function than to to defend the terms and conditions of their workers and in fact to promote amongst workers uh, habits of sobriety and self-discipline and saving up money so they can buy houses and not drinking too much and generally uh, enabling workers or at least some workers to aspire to the status of respectability. And it's already the case by the early 20th century that really there's a full spectrum within the organised labour movement that runs from one of those uh, poles right to the other, I think. In the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill of gray, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses for the people here are singing bread and roses, bread and roses. Well, we have to play Bread and Roses and we should play Judy Collins' version, although there is a very, very moving version in the film Pride. It actually began as a, as a poem written by James Oppenheimer in 1911. Well, it was first, it was in a speech before that. Yeah, no, but I, yeah, so the phrase Bread and Roses was used in a series of like women's suffrage speeches and he writes that poem in reference to those speeches. But there's a strike the next year in 1912. It's like a wobbly strike, but led by by women in uh, the 1912 Lawrence textile strike. And that poem becomes a so that poem becomes associated not with women's suffrage, but with, with striking basically and and, um, strikes left led by women. And then it got put into, into music a few times in 1974, Mimi Farina, who is June Baez's younger sister, put it to the music that we recognize now. And then Judy Collins picked that up and had a hit with it in uh, 1976. For understandable reasons, unions have tended to be male-dominated, and in fact, only the most—I mean, perhaps none—I mean, really, only the kind of anarcho-syndicalist wing of the labour movement, say in the late nineteenth century, at least in the English-speaking world, would not have had as one of its key aspirations uh, the winning of the family wage for male workers. The fact, the idea of the family wage was the idea that the male worker could earn enough to keep a family comfortably so his wife would not have to go out to work so that she could stay home and look after the house and the children. I have to say, 
you know, this is often now talked about in very crude terms as, as this, is, this is obviously just a form of patriarchal oppression. And I, I think it does have to be, you, know, you do have to take it account of the fact that for people living under the conditions they were living under, where there's there's no socialised healthcare and childcare, you know, looking after a domestic situation is really difficult. This wasn't only a matter of asserting women's men's authority over women; it was also a pragmatic solution to the problem of well, how do you, you know, how do you manage a household under conditions of economic exploitation? Totally, but it also it's a recognition of like how bad the conditions were for women with the the added you yeah. know patriarchy yeah. and sexual oppression in the workplace with no kind of space for the vision that that could be any different yeah, like exactly. these were the yeah. conditions in which women women were working under and you know any respectable and i don't mean that as a pejorative i mean like people being like well we don't want women to have to go through this too so yeah absolutely you know, if we can get a wage so that's the reality of the conditions there but before we go on to the 20th century let's talk about the the match girl strike i mean we should say uh, up front that many of the match girls were not girls there were women and often these things are, are termed with the term girls and i think i think that's yeah. something that that itself should be challenged but i think it's it's um the match girl strike was basically a strike that took place in bow in east london in, in 1888 and i think it's significant because of um, that what I was saying earlier, that situation where you have a, a group of girls and young women who are making matches like in these factories in horrific conditions with a com- with a complete assumption that you know their their ongoing continuous oppression was you know the way that things were done and there was no imagination that in any way this group of women could organize collectively and rise up and they did and it made you know a phenomenal change not just for their working conditions but for people to external to that workplace to a you know be educated on what the working conditions were but also it had a huge effect on the emancipation of women as you know actors in the workplace so i think maybe the the quick summary on that which is that girls were starting you know their life working in in those factories from about about 13 it was a really really physical job the conditions were horrible so things like you know they had to stand on their feet all day any toilet break was taken out of your wages like these really meager wages and then stuff like you know any worker had to uh were not most of them didn't have shoes so they worked barefoot but then you would get fined if you had dirty feet and stuff like that but then you know there were like 20% 30% dividends being given over to shareholders so like you know these this company i think the company was called it wasn't Bryant and May was it Bryant and May yeah right. Bryant no, and May still is Bryant still is May, the yeah. biggest match company in Britain. yeah Bryant and May that's right um but basically, this the the power of the women was completely underestimated. I mean, it was is a total like sweatshop um, environment, and there was this thing called fossy jaw, which they'd get from the white phosphorus, um, which is a really painful kind of. I think it's a bone cancer in the jaw. Um, so you know, really horrible working conditions. But then basically, there started to develop some kind of action that was being organized in the factories. But what the interesting that happens thing that happens there is I think there's a there's a pamphlet or the, that was produced and then the bosses try and get the women to sign this kind of 
counter like this counter propaganda which they create and it completely blows up and the women kind of refuse to go to work and then by i think the end of the week or the end of two weeks like no one was going to work in the factory um and there was unfair dismissal again and then there was a full strike action of a thousand five hundred workers who went and walked out and went on a demonstration in the streets um and the effect of that was kind of massive and it got to the point where um within a couple of decades um I think white phosphorus was was outlawed and quite quickly after that demonstration the women won way better pay and conditions and it was just kind of quite shocking I think for everyone involved not just the what the conditions were but that you know you could actually win a much better paying conditions quite quickly and I think some people call this the new unionism for some reason. I don't quite understand that. Well, the Matt strike is seen as the beginning of the new unionism, or one of the beginnings. Yeah. But then the, the, and the new unionism involved, basically, it was the deliberate attempt by labour organisers and trade unionists to organise non-elite sectors of the workforce, like unskilled labour, ordinary factory labour, which just hadn't really been unionised, and, and also dockers. It also wasn't visible, like that work was not visible to other sectors of society. Like people just didn't really know how this stuff was made, yeah, you know. And that's, that's also true. part of what this these waves of strikes or these kinds of strikes had done is that it brought to the attention of, you know, like philanthropists or like middle class people who were actually quite outraged in the Victorian era that these conditions this was how stuff was made. On the Match Girls strike, before we move on, I think also what's significant there is if we're looking at this from like an over time and space, like internationalist perspective, is how what capital has done is that when workers have won, you know, across the board kind of rights and better conditions in the UK is what we've seen a century later is that those those kind of conditions being outsourced to the global south. Yeah. So if you look at how sweatshops are being run, you know, like I did a lot of work on, you know, the gar- women in the garment industry and you look at the East End conditions, East End London in, you know, 19th century and then you look at them at the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century and how that's just moved from London to Bangladesh or from London to Vietnam. And that's how capital extracts, you know. Yeah, well, that's totally right. Yeah. And I mean, well, there is a whole strand of Marxist and neo-Marxist theory, which we've talked about lots of times before in the show. Uh, we would particularly associate with the Italian so workerist and autonomist currents since the 60s. But you can also associate with thinking of people like the historian E.P. Thompson, who I've already mentioned. And according to that view, it's workers organising themselves in this way to improve their conditions and to resist capitalist oppression. That is the fundamental driver of political and technological innovation in a capitalist society, at least for, from its quite early stages. So in a certain sense, imperialism itself is a response to the fact that workers have organised themselves such that the kinds of super exploitation to which they're subject up to the 1870s just aren't really sustainable in the metropolitan core anymore so you export oppression to these other places where workers are less well organized and also that logic is seen as driving off kinds of technological innovation that many of the major waves of a technological innovation have been accelerated or driven by capital looking for tools that it can use 
to heighten exploitation or to increase the productivity of the labor at its disposal or to export exploitation to away from the initial sites of manufacturing and consumption and that this is sort of driven by the activity of workers of which the strike is the most obvious form uh, and it's a pretty compelling account. I think it's not a complete account. I think you have to say that there are times when capital just does manage to innovate, capitalists innovate in order to compete with each other or just in order to make more profits without workers having pushed them into it. But it, it is a really useful uh, analytical framework for explaining a lot of things. That corporate, that, you know, that's part of a core periphery theory, you know, theoretical framework. But I think it's it's also... I think you're right in that it's actually quite 20th century. I think what happens in the 21st century is it comes back to the home turf to extract more value. And and that's yeah. part of the reason why we're seeing all of these strikes today is that capitalism is running rampant in its home turf in a way that it maybe wasn't when it was regulated in the mid-20th century. Do you have a thing to say about the, the Match Girl strike was that it was led by Annie Besson? who later went on to become a theosophist. Just a little <laughs> callback to our, um, our uh, uh, episode on magic. Before Christmas. Yeah, we should do a whole thing about the theosophists one day because they're pretty yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah, <I have> a... <laughs> Just to complicate um, our nice, neat labour history with some weirdness that, that was swirling around in the movie. Well, there's so many, so, many, uh, so many kind of trade unionists and so many radical socialists are into that, like occult revival stuff and forms of mysticism yes. in the sort of 1890s, 1910s, 20s. I have promised Keir and some of our friends that one day I'll, I'm going to run a role-playing game set in that, in that space. So I think we should play We Were There by Bev Grant, which is like quite an amazing and really moving song about women workers being in the factories and being doctors and being all of these different kind of different professions that um, are left out of history. So yeah, really moving song about women workers. We have plowed and we have planted. We have gathered into bars. Done the same work as the men With babies in our arms But you won't find our stories In most history books you read We were there, we're still here Fighting for the things we need We were there in the factories We were there in the mills We were there Shall we, um, shall we return ourselves to the 1880s before we move on? Yeah, so the Match Girl strike is, is 1888. Then 1889 is the, is the strike, the dock worker, the East End dock strike, which uh, is the one that's normally associated. That's the strike that's really normally associated with this new unionism. A year later, there is the um, gas workers strike in Leeds. Um, which culminates not far away from me again. I am again. Kia can see all of this history from his I window. I cannot quite see it, but I can. I can produce a mental picture quite nicely. <laughs> um, uh, 
in which um, there was a big strike. They got some some scabs in from Manchester and London. Uh, they got billeted in the town hall in Leeds, and then they got marched up to uh, what is now called Armley Gyratory. It's a big gas works in Armley. They got marched up, surrounded by troops, in a big parade through the through the city centre, with um, uh, you know soldiers with guns at the front, cavalry, scabs, and then at the back they had. Um, the Lord Mayor and, and dignitaries in a big ornate carriage, and the the strikers led by Tom Maguire ambushed this this um, parade, broke it up by uh, by um, throwing things down from a railway bridge, um, scattered the scabs, and basically won that strike. Excellent. Um, but for the benefit of any listeners who don't know, what is a scab? This is internal terminology to our world. Yeah, scab or a blacklegger, and blacklegs. Uh, are probably more archaic now, uh, are workers who either refuse to go on strike or who are employed to replace strikers during a strike. And so the gas workers went on strike. They all went out. The employers, actually the city council, well, weren't the employers, but they, they're the ones who organised it. They went and recruited people. The people who came up from London and Manchester, they later claimed that they didn't know that they were they were going to be replacing strikers, but they only admitted that when they were surrounded by a hostile mob ready to to, <laughs> to, to enact physical violence, which is probably what you would say, isn't it? And, and that and that is something that happens today. Let's just clarify, right? This is this is like bringing in workers to do like shifts when you know, like tube workers are on strike or whatever. This happens, right? Am I right? Yes, yes, it does. Yeah, it does happen all the time. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So basically, this was seen as something you know, something which broke the solidarity of the union. And so there were names such as scabs are obviously derogatory, etc. You have all of these other tactics, such as sending people to Coventry, which means that no worker will talk to that person because they scabbed, you know, in certain mining villages, you know, families who, who scabbed during the 1926 general strike would still be looked down on or perhaps not talked to by other families in the village, et cetera, et cetera. Even now, if Leeds are losing to Nottingham Forest, uh, Leeds fans will sing, scab, 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 <laughs> uh, because, because of the 1984 strike, mainly due to the um, uh, <laughs> the, the difficulty of losing a match. Uh, though that's, you know, I'm not going to claim um, higher level of political consciousness amongst Leeds fans. But you, you can see it that, that that idea is still sort of prevalent in, in the sort of in the culture sort of thing. Anyway, that's one the point I was making. The point I was trying to make was like when we when we think about the 1880s, 1890s, new unionism, like what you're seeing is like this huge explosion of uh, unionization. And you're seeing new sectors organised. That's the thing. You're yeah. seeing people work, yeah. you're seeing sectors of the workforce who previously had been thought difficult or impossible to organise because of their, because they were mostly illiterate, to be honest. You're seeing them get organised. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, yeah, so like, yeah, so a move away from craft unions to, to general. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that that is like, that's one of the patterns we'd be able to see if we go through uh, the, the rest of the 20th century is that like you know this union density the number of workers in an industry who are unionized etc it doesn't move in a in a straight line in any direction it moves in like jumps and starts basically it moves in these sudden periods in which uh you know something takes off you have usually around a strike wave quite often during an inflationary period period of high inflation which is uh, interesting for us because that's what we're in at the moment. And quite often because 
some new organizational form either emerges or, or, or is produced, you know, proposed, etc. So the, the new forms of unions in, in new unionism is the example there. Perhaps a bit later on, we'll move to, you know, the sort of worker occupations and worker sit-down forms of organization that um, uh, we've seen in this sort of early and then towards the mid-20th century. That's something to hold in your mind during a period we're in now, a strike wave, in which union density, the number of workers in unions have been declining for absolute decades, with some small upturns uh, over recent years. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it will continue in that way. You know, there is a possibility, if you look back at history, that you will there will be an upsurge in which things can change quite fundamentally. And like new unionism in the 1880s, it fundamentally changes the history of the UK, basically. Yeah. You know, it's one of those periods in which the balance of forces suddenly shifts absolutely dramatically. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Okay, so we're going to leapfrog. Uh, the First World War and the period leading up to it, and it's and get into its immediate aftermath, which I think is the next time there's a really significantly distinctive wave of labour organisation and strike action, and some of it allied to the revolutionary militancy of the Russian Revolution. So, what what's going on in in there? Yeah, um, there are sort of like general strikes before that, the first Russian revolution in 1905, before we get to the two revolutions in 1917, was this big mass strike. And like that Rosa Luxemburg's book or pamphlet about the mass strike is sort of saying, look, this is a, this is the route to, 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 to revolution. But then after the First World War, there there is a series of like revolutionary events which tend to revolve around like mass strikes in which workers occupy their workplaces. And so in Italy... They call it the Bieno Rosso, the two red years in which uh, a huge white strike wave, workers occupy their factories, and the idea is that they should just start to produce stuff, but it sort of fails, ultimately fails. It's in it's in the, the light of that failure, that, and then, of course, the rise of fascism, that sort of Gramsci starts writing and starts thinking about you know, that war of position, war of manoeuvre idea around how revolutionary politics or how politics can go. But like the, the interesting thing is that, that that sort of like the idea that people would occupy a factory and then restart production, you know, that's sort of tied to a very particular type of, of, of workforce, I think. So, you know, it's the classic idea of councillorism that what you, you know, what, what happens is that you have this general strike and then the new form of organisation are the workers' councils that form within the factories or whatever. The sort of autonomist analysis of that is that that is tied to a particular type of worker who has a large amount of control over and knowledge about how production happens in a factory. And then what happens with Fordism, with the development of the conveyor belt and Taylorism, this breaking up of work into these minute pieces, is that there's this huge de-skilling of labour. And, you know, by the time you get the full expansion of Fordism, that sort of strategy is just not available. And so new forms of strike sort of emerge. I suppose we'd... You know, if you wanted to go into, you know, the next wave. Well, in some countries, there's a real explosion in unionization in the 1930s. And so in the US, you have this factory occupation, which is known, or this this tactic, which is known there as the sit-down strike. So the Flint, Michigan sit-down strike in 1936 is, is like the seminal moment 
in that wave and in, in the US, you know, union density absolutely rockets around that 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 moment because a sort of new form is is taken. I think the story is slightly different in the UK. Uh, it's not until later on in the 30s into the 40s that that union density really really increases. I think. No, that's true. But the the big story of the period between the wars in the UK is the the Great General Strike of 1926. Oh, of course, and, yes, and it's after that. Yes. So 1926, period burned into the the uh, memory of the organised working class in Britain. 1926 sees the first and really well the only real official general strike ever called by the Trade Unions Congress, the National Organisation of uh, Confederation of Trade Unions. The motive for it is a dispute between coal miners and their employers. At this time in the 1920s, is before the coal industry is nationalised. And miners are still generally negotiating very localised contracts with very small local landholders, basically. Um, There is a push in the face of an economic recession the sort of po- the mini boom of the post World War One period has ended, and there's a push to cut the wages of miners. There is a general perception throughout the labour movement and the public at large, really, that mining is a very, very difficult job. That miners have always been underpaid and poorly treated, given how central coal is to Britain's industrial economy and, ha- and always has been. So that not only do the miners call a national strike, but when they call upon the TUC to call a national general strike. Initially, the TUC agrees to do this. What, one of the things that's really interesting is the intense resistance on the part not just of the employers' class themselves, but on the part of the professional classes, the petty bourgeoisie. Famously, university students are, are called upon to mobilise themselves to run to drive buses, you know, and do and even I'm not sure if they got as far as going down the mines because the strike didn't last that long, but to operate services for the public and in a deliberate attempt to break the strike. And that's, I mean, that is interesting because that is pretty much the last time that the sort of professional classes in Britain can be reliably called upon to support the, the bourgeoisie over the working class. By the next generation, a very large number of those professionals will themselves be salaried and although they will have a very different kind of life and social status to industrial workers the fact that they are themselves essentially wage workers will lead to a shift in their political consciousness which arguably has been going on has been you know starts then and is still going on almost 100 years later which is why we are seeing nurses and teachers striking uh, with greater levels of militancy today than we have ever seen before but the general strike in the face of this opposition from government from sections of the population from the bbc which is a very new institution then but notoriously you know, acts you know, as a mouthpiece of government, and government is you know, committed to breaking the strike. You know, the the army t- are sent onto the streets in some places, and the, famously, the great general strike only lasts what is it, twelve days before the TUC basically calls it off. The miners themselves try to stay out for longer. I mean, the, from a historical perspective, it's interesting. It's something I have I've studied quite a lot. I've looked at the histor- historiography quite a lot. And really, the question about the Great General Strike is why the TUC went along with it at all, like for a week and a half or whatever it was. I might, I can't, is it 12 days? Is it three weeks? How long did it last, the Great General Strike? Eight days. 
week and a bit, yeah. It lasts for eight days. And the big question is, well, why did they even... I mean, they, it's quite clear from the history that there just was nothing like the levels of militancy or the sort of revolutionary commitments. Because let's be clear, by this, but the Great General Strike is partly happening because at least amongst the miners, at least within their core base of South Wales, revolutionary communism, inspired in great part by the success of the Russian Revolution, has reached a level whereby these guys really want to see how far they can push it towards proletarian revolution. Uh, But outside really outside of South Wales, to be honest, even within the mining communities and certainly outside the mining industry, there's just zero evidence of the level of revolutionary militancy that would have been required to make the Great General Strike successful. So what, part of the question is just is always, just, well, why did the TUC go along with it at all? And the TUC, they seem, it's, I think the most convincing answer I know is, well, they sort of morally felt morally obliged. They had to. There was a widespread sense amongst their members and amongst the public that the miners had a moral case. And so they had, when they asked for support, they had to be given it. But I would say the idea that which is popular in part of the kind of revolutionary popular imagination in Britain sometimes, that Britain was sort of on the verge of revolution in 1926, I think is probably overstated. I mean, the miners were experimenting with forms of militancy which they would they would come to exercise to great effect once the economic and social conditions had changed at that moment the economic tides were really against them that the demand for labor in the economy was reducing basically the labor market was slackening and they were quite easily defeated and then the consequence was they lost the dispute. They did suffer a significant drop in wages. The mass unemployment in the coal and industrial sectors in the, of the 1930s manifested itself. And the effect on the morale of the kind of organised working class in Britain was disastrous. And union density dropped to incredibly low levels by the mid-1930s, lower even than today. Like the, uh, no, Thatcherism and... 50 years of neoliberalism have not managed actually to erode union density in Britain to the levels it was at in the mid 30s because the public sector has been this sort of redoubt of organised labour in, in a way that it absolutely was not in the 20s and 30s. So that's the story of the great general strike. We can sort of say what happens in the 30s and, and what happens in the 40s with World War II and then with its aftermath is really the the emergence for the first time in places like Britain and the United States of an industrial society with full employment. And full employment massively increases the power of workers, including miners. So by the 1940s, in the period after World War II, those same southern Welsh coal miners are able to form the political base for the great Nye Bevan, the British minister, the most left-wing member of the post-war Labour cabinet. And that is why, according to me and certain and other sort of socialist historians, that is why we end up with the National Health Service being built on socialist principles, not according to the insurance principle, which the more right-wing members of the Labour cabinet, even at that time, would have preferred. And so you get into the 40s and 50s and the period when the when the kind of techniques that are being developed, things like the sit-down strikes in the Ford factories that Keir was talking about, developed from the late 30s, are very commonly used by trade unions, which now have the huge advantage of being based in a full employment economy, which means there are not scab workers to call upon if they go out on strike, which puts huge pressure on employers. 
the result of all this is that over the 40s 50s up to about the mid 60s you really have the golden age a sort of golden age of trade unionism when trade unions are widely understood by both their enemies and their supporters as having become some of the most powerful institutions in society and the threat of the strike is one which can can often win very significant uh, concessions from employers and even sometimes from government uh, during that period but one of the features of course of that period is that arguably i mean the labor movement arguably more so than in the 1890s is completely male dominated or is perceived to be completely male dominated so but there are some important exceptions to that which for completely predictable gendered reasons i think you should talk about that yeah <laughs> so there's three three um uh three women-led strikes that i would like us to chat about i'll mention the three of them and then i'll go through each one of those so they are the 1968 dagenham ford factory strike uh in essex it's the 1977 icelandic women's strike it's a super interesting one and 1976 and 78 the grunwick strikes in northwest london so i I think those are three significant strikes for women's involvement in uh, strike action in the UK. The the first one being the strike that's going on in, in Dagenham um, was basically the reason why we have the Equal Pay Act. And it was just a really significant moment where women were just wanting to be paid as, as much as men, but women had not taken action on that kind of level in that way before. Um, and I just wanted to mention it because, not only because it's significant, but there's really interesting kind of media out there. And there was a whole film that was uh, made about it. But we wouldn't have had the Equal Pay Act of 1970 if it wasn't for the Ford Dagenham action taken by by women. So that's the film, that yeah, one. The film is called Made in Dagenham. Dagenham is yes, D-A-G-E-N-H-A-M. It's a suburb of northeast London. And then I wanted to mention the 1975 Icelandic women's strike because it's just quite a fun one, again, for the imaginary, where I think it's about, what is it, 75,000 women on the 24th of October, 1975. They just walked out of their jobs and their children and their homes and went on a general strike, which I think was called the a Women's Day Off. Um, and this is, uh, yeah, in Iceland. And I think there's... 30,000 women in, in, in Reykjavik alone, um, which kind of went on this this march. And this caused total chaos because there were no women at their jobs, you know, whether it's on, on desks and, and factories and shops and stuff. But also they were refusing to take care of the kids. So the, all the men had to take the kids to work. And the funniest bit about this for me is this statistic that apparently like they ran out of sausages in all of the shops because the men thought, well, sausages, that's the quickest way to feed kids. And so they, <laughs> all the men went out to buy sausages to make, <laughs> to make food for the kids. Um, and apparently there was like kids, you could hear like in the radio stations, you know, while the men were doing um, uh, news reading and stuff like that, you could hear like kids giggling in the background and just like total chaos, which obviously, you know, made a big point about social reproduction and about wi so-called women's work and loads of unpaid labor. So it, again, it's a really, really interesting story of which there's there's a lot of media around. Um, do you want to say anything more on that one before we move on to Grunwick, guys? Yeah, could I just... 
could I just man- mansplain the Icelandic <laughs> women's strike for a moment? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> because um, no, because there's been a couple of uh, there's been a few women's strikes w- with some sort of like you know re- reference to inheritance from that strike. A, f- a few women's strike over the last sort of five years, really significant one in Poland, and then a mm. very large one in Argentina, and then a very big one in Spain. Um, and they, they're all sort of, I, I mean, it's probably like five years ago, perhaps a bit closer to the, than that. Particularly the one in Argentina and Spain. The one in Poland was around abortion rights and against the right-wing government there. But the ones in, in Argentina and Spain in particular were this idea of that this pedagogical element to strikes as they make things visible, which which were previously hidden. I, it's hard to see all this sort of social reproductive labour that goes on, all of this work that women are doing in the house unless they stop doing it. You know, you only notice that the, the dishes are done when the dishes have all piled up and say, well, why is that not being done? Yeah, definitely. And how that the, the Icelandic women's strike is being referenced in a lot of other women's strikes, you're right. So it's, it's, it's a yeah. really kind of historic, significant moment historic, historically. And the third strike I want to talk about is the Grunwick strike. And so this was at the Grunwick Film Processing Labs in Dollis Hill, northwest London. Um, it was a two-year strike between 1976 and 1978. And it's significant because the strikers were mostly female and of East African Asian heritage. Uh, and the media, of course, called them strikers and saris. And they were led by this woman, Jayaben Desai, who was like a really charismatic and inspiring leader and took no shit from the bosses or from the TUC that's the Trade Union Congress, where she held a hunger strike because the TUC recommended that the workers pull back from the action. So this was a significant event because it was the first uh, dispute where the strikers were not white, but still received widespread support from the labor movement. Um, there were previously disputes that were led by majority ethnic minority strikers, but they were marginalized by the trade union movement. So in this case, again, in in um, the processing factory, there were there was terrible institutionalized sexist, racist conditions, women not being allowed to go to the toilet, etc. The typical kind of sweatshop stuff that we hear about from the majority world. Um, women were being paid like twenty eight pounds a week, where the average wage was seventy two. Compulsory overtime, um, and they'd actually turn away white workers because they couldn't be as easily exploited. So the strike was about pay, but also about racism and bullying cultures, um, and the employer refusing to recognize the union. So in connection to what we were talking about in the beginning, in this case, the Postal Workers Union came out in support and refused to to cross the picket line. And this had a huge impact on the business. But I think it's most interesting um, to look up. And this is is the stuff I'm really excited about, um, because it was an epic two-year picket where there were apparently up to 20,000 people at a time on marches down these suburban roads in Dollis Hill in northwest London in support of the workers. So we're not talking about a national kind of A to B march in central London. This is like 20,000 people down narrow lanes in a small suburb. So imagine what that kind of does to your experience of your local area and your, your day to day when you have that kind of action going on. It did end in defeat, but it, uh, it, the, but it was very significant. Yeah, well, it was hugely significant. I mean, it's often seen now as having been a sort of high point for Labour militancy in Britain and working class solidarity. And it's also widely recognised that it was one of the things that really provoked the the turn to neoliberalism amongst 
key sections of the capitalist class and some of their allies in government, they drew the conclusion from Grunwick that far more direct and brutal methods, such as those being tested out by Pinochet in Chile, had to be used to suppress working class organisation if we weren't going to see a socialist revolution in Britain by sometime in the 1980s. Hey Robbie, where are you going? In the middle of the night I'm going down to London To the bloody Cranwick site Where a wee small band of immigrants Are fighting for their rights So put your coat on Jimmy Lord And come and join the fight Hold the line, hold the line We'll be there before the dawn To hold the picket line We absolutely have to play uh, Paul Robeson's version of Joe Hill Probably we can pull from YouTube the famous clip of, jo- of, jo- of Paul Robeson, the very famous uh, black singer and political activist of the mid 20th century, uh, singing and actor and actor, yeah, because he was just really, really famous, one of the most famous people in the world, wasn't he at that point? Yeah, it's true, like huge global star. I think it's in the 40s. I think probably that footage is from singing the song to a group of Welsh miners. The song is based on a poem by Alfred Hayes and it was set to music by Earl Robinson. And the song, which I think we probably played on the fake music microdose, yeah, the song is, it's sometimes it's called The Ballad of Joe Hill, sometimes it's just called Joe Hill. And it's the song in which, you know, the protagonist, you know, the singer of the song imagines that the martyred wobbly hero, Joe Hill, he, he was subject to judicial execution in Utah uh, in the 1910s. And he had been one of the great activists of the, the industrial workers of the world, the militant trade union movement that really had its glory days in America in the first couple of decades of the 20th century. And he was also the himself, he was a prolific songwriter. He was one of the authors of lots of songs which are still famous as part of the American radical socialist folk tradition. Um, I don't think we're not playing any actual Jay Hill songs in this episode, but we did in the folk music microdose, if you want to go back and listen to that. And uh, there, it's always easy to find those songs online. But this song, I Dreamed I Saw Jay Hill Last Night, uh, was later covered by people like Joan Baez, but it's I think it's the Paul Robeson version, which is really uh, iconic, which really turns this into a hymn. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes, says Joe what they can never kill went on to organize, went on to organize. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me, says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. I never died, That, along with the 1974 miners' strike being seen as having brought down Ted Heath's Conservative government in the early 70s, 
that is the backdrop to the so-called winter of discontent and then the Thatcher reaction against trade unionism. By the end of the 70s, there's a, there is a historical situation not at all unlike the one we are in now, when mass inflation has led to a wave of demands by workers for pay increases, when government or employers are saying they cannot meet those demands without fatally compromising the profitability of private companies and also stoking inflation by pushing up prices further, stoking up demand in the economy, culminates in a confrontation between uh, workers across a range of sectors and the minority Labour government that's in office between 74 and 79, uh, culminating in the so-called winter of discontent when famously, for example, municipal rubbish, garbage workers go on strike for a couple of weeks, resulting in you know garbage piling up in the streets. And the image of the winter of discontent as being like Britain on the point of total collapse, massively exaggerated, just insanely exaggerated, was very intensively promoted by the increasingly right-wing press and also sections of broadcast media in Britain in the late 70s and really was repeated and repeated throughout the 80s and 90s. I remember when I was a ki- you know when I was a teenager it wasn't something you heard in the north because in the north we hated Thatcher and you know and we're on the side of the unions but if you talk to almost anyone it seemed from a sort of middle class background in from the south like they had really imprinted in their mind this idea that if you had a Labour government, what it would lead to was runaway inflation and uh, mass strikes. And, and and this all meant some sort of breakdown of civilization, which, you know, maybe from their bourgeois perspective, it really was. But And this is all the backdrop to the, the massive confrontation between Thatcher and the Thatcher government and the trade unions in the early 80s, which culminates in the great miners' strike of 1984. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to say about like the winter discontent and that sort of thing is that let's just put it in context for this awful, awful time in the 1970s. 1976 is the period when Britain was at its most equal in terms of material inequality uh, in history, basically, 1976. Uh, and it was also the, the, the point at which more of national income went towards wages rather than towards uh, rents or profits, so they call that the labour share of national income. And from there, it's been downhill ever since, people. Uh, yeah, so ba- basically, the 1984 miners' strike is something that the, the Conservative Party prepares for. They build up coal stocks, etc. They have this plan, the Ridley plan, about how to provoke a strike and, and beat the miners. And so it was, a, you know, it was a deliberate attempt that you would take on the miners, the strongest, most militant union, in order to break the unions generally. In the US, the sort of signature... Uh, struggle uh, uh, around the same sort of time uh, that that Ronald Reagan took on was around air traffic controllers, which I always think says something about the two different countries. We had the horny-handed um, uh, militant miners, and they had the, the the all they had to do in America was defeat the, the air traffic controllers. <laughs> I don't know; it seems wrong. For I mean, air traffic controllers <laughs> were seen as unbeatable. This is the point during the whole period of sort of high Fordism. The, the traffic, the air traffic controllers were seen as simply unbeatable because it was so e- all they had to do was switch off their terminals, and the entire you know national flight network wouldn't run. And you've got to remember, completely unlike Britain and Europe, domestic flights are absolutely crucial to America functioning as a, a federal polity and com and commercial space. 
So they were logistically really important. It's the same reason railway workers are so important in Britain. It's exactly the same logic. But you imagine railway workers, there's literally only a few hundred of them. And they just all, and they're quite militant. You know, they'll just all go on. They'll just stop working when they, whenever they feel like it. So, it was really significant. The air traffic controllers were widely believed to be unbeatable, uh, and to just be able to command whatever they wanted for their workers. So, so symbolically, Reagan beating them was really significant. I mean, I can accept they were logistics workers, so they had a lot of leverage. But they went to work wearing a, a shirt, so, so they're not the horny-handed. <laughs> quite right. Sons of Tory. Quite, right. <laughs> quite right. It's very notable. It's very it's notable. Sized imagery. But the worker, the workerist, the communist bros of Brooklyn around Jacobin don't ever seem to have anything to say about it. They're massively into romanticising the British miners. Uh, you know, quite rightly, but they don't. I've never seen them say much about the air traffic. Anyway, we're getting di- we're digressing. We're digressing. So yeah, so the the, the miners' strike it get it gets called in 1984. Uh, it's, it's early on in 1984. Yeah, so I can't quite remember. Well, it runs the basically the course of the year, pretty much. Yeah, and it, into 1980 in 1985, the, the government has planned this, and there's a huge mobilisation against the miners, and on the other side, there's a huge mobilisation in favour of the miners. And so, like, you know, the newspapers and the media, absolutely. You know, if you think they were bad during Corbynism, you don't see nothing, basically. <laughs> one of the really, remember, oh, I won't tell that story. Well, perhaps I will tell that story. But one of, the, one of the key moments for me in understanding the world was finding out that the BBC had filmed this very big picket at Orgreave, uh, which was a, uh, a coking plant. It was one of the sort of like set piece battles, basically. And they, what they'd filmed is the police in massed ranks with horses and with like lots of weapons attacking the miners and then the miners in response throwing stones back at the police they filmed it that way and that's the way it happened but in fact the bbc took a conscious decision to reverse that order and they showed on the news that day miners throwing stones at the police provoking a charge by the police into the miners like when i understood that i sort of you know, it was one of those big sort of like light bulb moments for me. So this is a really big mobilization by the whole of the establishment. But there was a huge mobilization on the other side. So like loads of people would be out collecting money or food for the miners. The miners' wives would coll- would, would would do collective um, cooking. There'd be, there'd be uh, collective kitchens, etc. Basically, the, the miners were... Uh, you know, uh, had this huge amount of, or a huge tradition of militancy, but also because of the sort of setup of mining, where mines quite often were in like smaller communities outside the city. So you had incredibly tight communities of a huge history of struggle. You know, this is why they were they were um, seen as the uh, as the people to be and so hard to beat, basically. One of the central contentious issues of the strike was whether a national ballot should have been called. I mean, the leader, the miners' leader, Arthur Scargill, was thoroughly demonised by the press. Um, I would say on a kind of equal scale to Corbyn, really, but I mean, it's as bad as it can get. He was a Leninist, let's be clear. I mean, he did think that we were on the verge of a revolution. He also thought that the mi- that the government had a plan to close, to shut down the mining industry, which they weren't admitting to, and he was totally right about that. Absolutely totally right. right. Yeah. Uh, even some Tory MPs eventually in the early 90s, I remember, when they found out, they realised Scargill had been right about this, was sort of outraged. But he was also a Leninist, you know, and he thought that, you know, fripperies like democracy could be done away with and that he was... A, and also it wasn't clear that they would actually win a national ballot if they held a ballot for the strike. So the national strike was called uh, without a ballot. And this was a huge... 
one of the causes of the long-term split within the British Labour movement and the left, which in some ways it has, has still hasn't recovered from, in my opinion. And it is still highly debatable whether it was a tactical mistake by Scargill not to call a ballot, because the fact that he hadn't called a ballot was the excuse used by the Labour leadership not to support the strike. I mean, the Labour leader, Neil Kinnock, always says he didn't support the strike because he was sure they were going to lose. And he, you know, he was from the valleys from South Wales, so he had some perspective on that. And you have to, it has to be said he was right. They did lose. On the other hand, he's, lots of people have never forgiven him for the kind of moral betrayal of not supporting the strike openly. And personally, I think if, if Scarlett had called a ballot, they probably could have won and they probably w- it would have been harder for people like Kinnock to reject it but it, it did it did lead to this perception amongst large sections of the sort of professional classes and sort of urban left that there was this sort of authoritarian vanguardist leninist sort of soviet stalinist tendency in things like the, the national union of mine workers which they couldn't quite get with and i think in many ways as I say, I, I, I sort of think the British left and Labour movement hasn't recovered from that. It certainly hasn't ever really recovered from the demoralisation caused by the defeat of the strike and the defeat of that scale of mobilisation. And, you know, anyone my age or older who was living anywhere close to either mining areas or big cities at the time can remember that in, you know, in 1984, indeed, the, the sense of, you know, an entire section of the population being mobilised in support of this strike was not really like anything I've experienced subsequently. And, and I have to say, not even during the kind of campaigning for Labour in the Corbyn years, uh, which is partly why I, I didn't think we were going to win. <laughs> it has to be said, you know, the Labour, the British left in general, not just the trade union movement, has still not really fully recovered from the scale of the defeat suffered by the miners at that time and I think it's probable probably reasonable to say that it was such a comprehensive and demoralizing defeat that it was always likely to take two generations to recover from it was always likely to take 50 years to recover from it and putting all that in some kind of historical perspective the current wave of labor militancy there have been upticks of labor militancy in the intervening uh, 40 years or 30 odd years really um, but this is the most intense wave of labour militancy we are seeing now since the defeat of, of the miners and the print workers in, in the mid-80s, I think. So that does put the current strike wave in a really significant historical perspective. Yeah, uh, we should we should talk a little bit about why, why this is happening now, I think. But before that, we should just complete the history by saying days lost to strike start declining straight after the miners strike. You know, obviously it spiked during the miners' strike because there are so many miners on strike, but like from the pre-miners' strike period. But it really falls off a cliff around 1990. And like you can just see that that's a real big problem because the labour share of national income, the share of, of all of the money that goes towards wages rather than towards profits and rents drops off a cliff at the same time, basically. And real wages just drop ever since. Well, it depends how you measure real wages. Wages as a share of GDP... I would say, yeah, the properly Marxist uh, a thing to thing to pay attention to as an economic historian is not real wages because real wages are almost impossible to measure, to be honest, because the amount of stuff you can buy changes. So it sort of doesn't mean any, you know, it doesn't really mean anything to say like a bag of chips cost this much in 1972 and this much in 1984, given that the social status and the desirability of a bag of chips also changes and the other stuff you could spend that money on changes. The desirability of a bag of chips never changes. <laughs> I know, what an example <laughs> to pick, Jim. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it does, changes. It does. Changes when I'm hungry. <laughs> well, I, I love chips, 
but there's just, there are other things I love as much as chips now, which they definitely <laughs> weren't in like 1982. But yeah, so it's share of it, the real the thing to pay attention to, uh, in our opinion, I would say, is share of GDP in wages. How much of the total product of the economic activity of the country is going to workers who the workers who are of course responsible for the vast majority of the that economic activity and its profits and yeah that has been in decline i mean that's been in decline since 1976 might have stabilized a little bit during um, the later years of the blair government stabilized a little bit during that period but not for long yeah it stabilized but i think that's probably because there was an increase in public spending yeah 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 no that's true yes there wasn't a significant increase in the capacity of of workers to organize and defend themselves and it, ha- it really has to be said i mean I've, I've said this loads of times over the past 15 years that this is the thing for which the blair government you know, should stand forever condemned that to have a labor government in power for 13 years and just no real effort made at all to to rebuild and revive the labor movement is is really shocking and has had the long-term consequence of enabling you know, the austerity project of the tories since 2010 they wouldn't if labor if union density had recovered during the blair years the austerity project would not have been politically possible and also we should mention something that i mean Keir, you said it in passing but i think it's a really important point is that what in the late 70s like where britain was was the most equal it has been and that that's a hugely significant thing for people to understand like seeing where we are today yeah Obviously related to the share of income, but like you know, in terms of how equal society is for for a supposed uh, developed country, and I mean, are we still the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world? Like it is shocking the amount well, of we're, we're sliding down that scale right now. Yeah. I don't know. By the time this goes out, we might we might not be in the top ten anymore. We might not be in the top top 10. And I mean, it's just shocking the amount of inequality that exists in Britain. And that is inextricably linked to the power of, you know, labour and striking and unions and stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, let's be let's be absolutely clear. The British establishment, the British ruling class within which historically finance capital, the banks had always been more powerful, more influential than industrial capital, the manufacturers, at least had always apart from maybe during the 50s and 60s, took a concerted collective decision at the end of the 70s, seeing what was happening, seeing the threat to their long-term power and interest presented by things like the Grunewick strike and the militancy of the miners, and took a collective decision that the de-industrialisation of the British economy, Britain having been the workshop of the world for the past 150 years, was a price worth paying for the political, de, you know, the, the political, I want to use a less gendered term than emasculation, but I can't think of one. You know what I mean? The political kind of de-neutralisation, de-powerification, making up words now, of the, of the, of the labour movement. That's what it was all about. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an unintended consequence. I mean, this is the disagreement I'd have with, like, you know, friends of mine who were maybe liberal centrists or even sort of Heathite, One Nation Tories, I mean, they think the deindustrialization of the economy was an unfortunate, unintended side effect of, of Margaret Thatcher's attempt to reinvigorate the commercial economy in Britain, which was stagnating in the 1970s, which it was. 
but it wasn't but that wasn't an unintended consequence at all it was a to- the deindustrialization of the british economy was a completely intended consequence of the policies pursued by the thatcher government which the blair government did not do anything to reverse at all which w- what laid the basis for the turn to reactionary politics amongst older voters in the post industrial regions and th- and the reason was you know in the end the, the trouble from the point of view of the capitalist class as a whole and their state agencies, the trouble with industrial capital, meaning manufacturers, is oh, they're always they're all, you know it's too easy for workers to put leverage on them. It's too easy for workers to go on strike and put pressure on them. So you really you want an economy which is all oriented around retail and services and finance because. Those, those People sectors, can't organise. Yeah, they're historically much harder to organise, much less likely to organise, and much less likely to put pressure on you. So it's completely intended consequence. Yeah. This isn't a conspiracy theory by Jeremy, by the no, way. No, this, this isn't is... a conspiracy theory. And I also think what's re- related to this, which is important political education, is I think with a lot of you know climate change discourse out there, people there's you know there there are a lot of people I think who don't understand what the hi- what where where the emotions of the history in the history is coming from when people talk about coal. And that creates a cultural divide, I think, That's true, actually, amongst yeah. different kind of campaigners in the UK because you have all the, you know, coal not dole stuff and that that's very much linked to i think an understanding of what that the dissemin the, the the deliberate destruction of that history rather than saying oh we know we want the coal industry back because we're we love fossil fuels and i think that's a, a, a really central point which is you know lacking and it works for the government for people not to have that political education around that sort of stuff from the climate change campaigning side you know well, of course, that completely played out very recently in the divisions within the left over Brexit, because the, historically, the National Union of Mining Workers was completely opposed to membership of the European Union. They were completely opposed to it. They thought it was going to end. It was going to end badly for the British working class and the manufacturing sector. You can argue about whether they were right or wrong and their understanding of the causalities there, but they were always against it. So they were always in favour of. You know what we came to call Lexit uh, before the Tory right discovered kind of anti-EU rhetoric as a cause before they discovered Brexit as a cause, and so there was always a section of the British left, especially that which had its roots in li- physically, literally in the mining communities, which was anti, uh, which is anti-EU. And I think one of the reasons for a lot of the miscomprehension of people's attitudes to Brexit on both sides was on the one hand, you know, people on the left who didn't come out of that tradition really not understanding why you would support Brexit, supporting what seemed to be a purely Tory cause. And also, though, to be honest, like people who did have their historic roots in those mining communities really not having their heads around the fact that, well, most of the rest of the left had just thought that Brexit was a Tory cause because it had been a cause of things like the Daily Mail for decades. So those differences in experience and the differences which came from people having or not having this direct connection to the coal communities and their particular politics like it it still has had reverberations like right down to very recent politics shall we move to um discussing like why this why there might be an upsurge now yeah perhaps a little bit of like like what's the nature of it and, and where where it might be going so like you know one of the reasons what we might but be quite excited about this strike wave 
bit apprehensive as well because it could quite easily lose. But um, you know, is when we've looked back at that history, we have seen these moments where where things have changed quite suddenly. You know, you have a strike wave that that builds, and a, and a hint of success means that you can have quite large expansion of unionization a worker organization into areas where where they're not organized and so you know to be clear most of the workers who are on strike now are either public sector workers or they are uh, workers in sectors that were previously nationalized such as the post office and well under rail as well but there has also you know there's this this strike in amazon today and in the us you've seen this sort of this shift towards sort of strikes within the private sector as well around you know logistics and these sorts of things there is potential here you know you could see that you know there, there, there is potential for things to, to be quite important actually like historically important but if you looked at like why it's taking off now that that like when we look at those periods of uh, when you have these big strike waves and things and things change quite suddenly it's always during periods of like discontinuity where things are not they're not just carrying on the same there's always some sort of element of change in some ways it's obvious that that covid has had some sort of impact on that right well, in part because you have with COVID, you have some sort of an increase in welfare, which allows people to become, get themselves into a more stable economic situation, which you know can be a basis upon which they can exercise power. You also have this this what what people call the Great Resignation. So there's been this real disappearance of of people in their fifties, in particular, from the workforce post COVID. Partly, I think, just people retiring early or finding new ways to support themselves. Then the other thing is inflation. You know, we're in this really high inflationary period. You've got inflation and stagnation, economic stagnation at the same time. And we've actually got quite low un- low unemployment and high inflation and stagflation. That was the situation in the 1970s, they called it stagflation, where you'd have high inflation, stagnant growth, etc. In the 1970s, the last time we had this stagflation, you had very strong reunions, basically. But like inflationary periods appears when you have sort of upsurges in strikes because, you know, if you basically, if you don't have, if you just um, uh, don't have, you know, um, 10% increases in your wages, then you're basically, your real wages are going down and you're going to be poorer. And so, you know, the, that it almost uh, promotes the idea that you have to have these very large wage increases. And the only way you can do that is, is sort of like collective action. But I think there's a third thing that going on. Uh, so I'm going to make a generation left argument <laughs> is that um, particularly in the US and the Amazon struggles in the US, like a lot of the people who are leading that or what seems to be happening is that like there's a lot of people who are from that graduates, basically, like left wing graduates who are going into service work because graduate level jobs are, are scarcer, rarer, or conditions in graduate level jobs are, are increasingly shit, basically. And so it tends to be that like younger people are going into, into service work and they're the ones who are sparking. Perhaps they're bringing different expectations with them. Perhaps they're bringing the experience of like that shift to the left amongst young people. They're the ones sparking these sort of unionization drives in, in the US, etc which then is having an effect on existing workers. There's a sort of like spreading radicalization. And like lots of testimony from Amazon organizing in the US is like, you know, there's all these people who are like, you know, um, existing workers who are like MAGA types, you know, make America great, Donald Trump supporters who actually turn out to be quite staunch allies in the unionization struggles and basically uh, undergoing this really big rapid change of values basically or change of of politics i think that's something you see quite often in in these periods of 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 upsurge in militancy 
is that you have one sector, one part of the population, they have a change that basically then infects other sectors of society. In Italy in the 1970s, there was a huge upsurge of worker militancy through the late 1960s up to the 70s. And the analysis is that, like, you know, the the reason that happened was because a load of workers from the south of Italy, more rural areas, who had their own sort of cultures and expectations, moved north to the great factories in the north and brought, you know, they disrupted things. There was an element of dust continuity, and they're the ones who sparked militancy and it spread to existing workers. I think there's something like that going on at the same time. Yeah, that's all definitely true. And I would add, there's also the long-term effects of what Marxist sociologists have for decades referred to as proletarianization. And that is the process by which sections of the workforce who previously had been considered if effectively part of the petty bourgeoisie, <coughs> the sort of social layer just be- below the proper bourgeoisie, and especially professionals, the teachers, doctors, etc., uh, university workers increasingly come to to be conscious of the extent to which they are actually members of the proletariat. They have no assets, significant assets. They only live by selling their labour. Their lives and their livelihoods are subject to their conditions as wage workers. And they come to think of themselves and their position in the overall relation to production accordingly. And they become increasingly politically militant and increasingly willing to make common cause with other workers who historically had had much lower social status than them. So uh, I was on a picket line a few weeks ago and I stopped for a chat on the way there to a postman who were also on the picket line. That is something which uh, Marxist sociologists decades ago were saying was going to happen to people like university lecturers and professors, but it hadn't happened then. So that is really, um, that's uh, pretty interesting thing to reflect on i think yeah look at the people on strike at the minute it is railway workers it is postal workers but it's also teachers nurses doc junior doctors um solicitors recently went on strike as well the the conditions for uh young young trainee solicitors is absolutely incredibly uh bad teachers university lecturers now, this is the PMC, the classic PMC, the professional managerial class, which is there. That's why, that's why strict Marxist sociologists criticised the concept of the PMC at the time it was put yeah, forward, yeah. and that's why it remained an incoherent concept. Um, yes, you couldn't. I couldn't portray my my tongue in my mouth, <laughs> my tongue in my cheek over the over over a podcast. But yes, I mean, there, I mean, the, I mean, we should say because people will have heard this term professional managerial class. And the thing is, most people who hear it today who don't know the history of Marxist sociological debates in the nineteen seventies assume it means basically managers. Uh, and the thing is, that's not really what it was meant. It, it, at the time, the ter- when it first, the term was first coined, it meant managers, but also just ordinary school teachers. And that was coming out of a historical moment when school teachers were seen as members of a sort of social elite whose job was to educate, care for, but also to police and regulate the behaviour of the working class. And, and teachers hadn't suffered anything like the, the degradation of their social status that they have in the US and other places since then. So we thought we would play the uh, Christmas 1983 number one hit uh, Only You by the Flying Pickets. Moving 
Flying Pickets are a band most from Liverpool, uh, made up mostly of unemployed actors, but people who had been involved in the Labour movement. In the days of mass picketing, we haven't really explained this elsewhere on the show, the two major things which the Thatcher uh, reform of trade union laws prohibited from the 80s onwards were, as we've discussed elsewhere on the show, solidarity strikes with other sections of the workforce and mass picketing, which is why to this day, legally, you're only you're supposed to only have how many six people on a yeah. picket line, and it's which is really egregious. I mean, on, you, I think you can make a perfectly good argument that in a liberal polity, you can't allow pe- pickets to physically prevent people from crossing a picket line. But you should be allowed to show people who want to cross a picket line how many people are asking them not to cross it. So it's a complete inhibition of democratic collective mobilisation. But what they were really trying to criminalise, criminalising mass picketing, was what was known as flying pickets. And flying pickets just meant people who would go from one workplace to another to try to swell the size of a picket at a particular place. And so the flying pickets were this very interesting, this vocal group who used a cappella choral singing to do covers of mostly kind of recent contemporary pop hits and only you was it wasn't it yazoo the original it was yazoo yazoo synth british classic british synth pop duo yazoo uh had a bit of a hit with this song only you and then they and but the flying pickets version of it uh, released in uh, 1983 uh, a year after the band formed became the christmas number one that year uh, just as the events that would lead to the minor strike were gearing up. I believe you two are going to be on strike next week, uh, and I'm not because I'm no longer in UCU. Um, well, I hope you're going well, to go on strike. I, I haven't decided you've yet. Both, you've both had the, the countenances of <laughs> scabs, in my opinion. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, right now, the University and College Union, the relatively recently formed, actually, Higher Education Union in the UK is engaging in by far its its most extreme strike action in its history or in the history of the whole sector over the next few weeks, which will be multiple days of strike action. The story I told earlier about why the strike might be happening, like I think the difficulty of exercising some sort of leverage with your university teacher, you know, it's a way into thinking about the difficulties that have to be overcome in order for these sorts of strike waves to to, to work basically part of it is you know that the vast majority of people work in the service sector of the manufacturing now that you know that part of that is a geographical relocation part of that is also is that you can get productivity gains in manufacturing much much easier than you can in the serve in most of the service sector and so you get that automation basically um 
So more people tend to be pushed into service work. And in service work, you know, often you're at some sort of remove from uh, your, your action, impacting directly on the people who employ you. For lecturers, the people who get affected first when they go on strike, most of the time would be students, basically the people that they don't particularly want to affect. You know, they want to put pressure on on managers, etc. You know, nurses, you know, the difficulty of them going on strike is that the first people who get affected when they go on strike are those that they care for, basically, uh, probably in both senses of the word of care for, you know, on, on patients, etc. Same with, with teachers, etc. It has to be a change in tactics, basically, to try to uh, address those sorts of problems, those sorts of difficulties. You know, one of the ways people have tried to address it is, is things through such as social unionism. So, in um is it 2018 2019 i think there was the big wave of teacher strikes in the us and the chicago teachers union is one of these it's that there's this gap between what we might think of as industrial and political strikes um, has become narrowed basically because of the difficulty of exercising leverage in an industrial sector i.e creating disruption in an industrial sector you know you will automatically have to move towards a political strike you have to bring, you have to reach out and find all of the people who are affected by your strikes such as parents etc and bring them on side and get those parents to exercise political pressure on on dis, on you know political decision makers that's that that's their sort of strategy um, i think there are other sort of tactics as well so one of the games that i run is this game called the social strike game and you know that in in some ways that sort of we've we've run that over the last sort of five years uh, as a form of sort of training to, th- to try and think about how one sector can support another sector, etc. You saw a little bit of that in Leeds recently, where in the, during the recent postal workers' strike, the renters' union Acorn, um, they did a picket um, outside one of the workplaces and, and you know prevented prevented lorries going in, etc. That would be illegal for the workers to do that, but you know, supporters can get away with it. You know, that sort of that sort of sort of support. Of course, perhaps you'd also have this have this sort of repeat of that sort of support that you saw in the miners' strike, where they, you know people were collecting tins and money, and there was collectivization of cooking, these sorts of things. You know, uh, that's the sort of thing that would have to take place for this sort of work, this sort of strike wave. You know, and an escalation in it as well for this sort of strike wave to win. On the other hand, I think the Tories are pretty weak. <laughs> I could imagine them folding, and they, they're pretty stupid. Then this is there's no they haven't got a Ridley plan for this. You know <laughs> how they defeat the RMT or anything like that. They haven't got a plan for it. Basically, it's almost like you know they're doing it on instincts. Basically, on no, it. they haven't. I mean, they haven't got a plan for it, and the RMT could win. And the RMT have you know they've used the very uh, charismatic and articulate leader Mick Lynch as a media weapon to build public sympathy and public support. And the nurses don't need to do that because they already enjoy huge amounts of public support. I mean, I would say, to be honest, historically, there's no question in my mind that the most significant of these strikes of this wave historically is, is the mind, is the nurses. Yeah, they've been scared of nurses going out since the 70s because they know that people love nurses. And everybody, and the nurses have a kind of symbolic status in the shared moral imaginary of the British public, I think, because absolutely everyone, apart from the most wild-eyed, you know, the most swivel-eyed libertarian, agrees that the pay of nurses is far too low, given the difficulty and importance of the work that they do. And they, there's something... They got a clap, didn't they? They got a clap. What more do they want? You know, so they're scared. I mean, so historically, it's really significant. Where it's going to go, I don't know. My guess is they're going to try and settle with the nurses and not anyone else. 
That's my guess. But we'll see. And we'll see by the time this show comes out whether Jeremy's prophecy will be correct. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's worth, it's really worth reflecting that this is... I, I mean, even if the current wave doesn't achieve its immediate objectives, which I have to say, given the inflationary pressures and given the pressures on government to contain inflation, it will be very difficult politically for the government to concede the demands that are being made at the moment. Even if that doesn't happen... This is an upt- an uptick in the class struggle, arguably the most dramatic one since the defeats of the eighties. So, where's it, where it's I, my strong suspicion? I guess this is what I've been saying on the show for years now: uh, is that a significant historic transition towards a better political situation for us is much further away than we would all like. But I still think that is the direction we are going. That is what it looks like to be at a certain stage, still relatively early in a journey, which is ultimately going where we would like it to go, but which is going to see a great deal of pain and require a great deal of courage and solidarity along the way to get there. Can I have the solidarity (laughs) and dodge the pain? pain, Dealing with the pain, having a good time, surviving it is what the show is usually about. So that's we'll we'll keep giving people advice on how to do Keep doing exercise. Keep doing exercise, people. (laughs) Until the revolutionary moment. Exercise, meditation, tabletop role-playing games. So a march day and night by the big cooling tower. They have the plans, but we have the power. So we'll march day and night by the big cooling tower. They have the plans. Now all of you know what side you're on, and they'll never keep us down.